You think he's not guilty, huh? I don't know. It's possible. Well, here it is not possible. That guy is not guilty. And here we are at Not Your Father's Movies. I am Vito. I'm Mike. I'm Jesse. And here we are with our special guest, Tony Letney. Tony, how are you tonight? Doing great. Thanks for having me All on. All right, so we are here to talk about 12 Angry Men, 1957. You guys all ready? I think so. Yeah, oh, I'm kind of angry. So ready for this. Oh, I think Letney's ready. Letney, you ready? Oh, I'm angry. <laughs> all right. <laughs> well, so to, to cap us off, to, to begin us, this is our first in a new series. It's a Not Your Grandfather's Trilogy. We are beginning with 12 Angry Men from 1957, directed by Sidney Lumet. Um, the teleplay, and later on the actual stage play and everything that's sort of been written about this was originally written by someone named Reginald Rose. Um, just to highlight a couple of the cast, because we do have a fairly large cast, about 12. Um, but we got juror number two, played by uh, John Fiedler. We have juror number three, played by Lee J. Cobb. Juror number eight, our protagonist, played by Henry Fonda. And juror number 10, played by Ed Bagley. So this is a, a legendary film and a part of our new trilogy talking about our grand, not our grandfather's films is talking about these. We're going to pick three classic courtroom dramas and the earliest one, the one that I think starts this whole genre off is 12 Angry Men. It's spawned countless ripoffs, remakes, uh, quasi remakes. Um, it, it's become foundational when we talk about courtroom dramas and especially as these are viewed as morality plays, um, it's essential. Uh, you can't escape it. Even when it comes down to just movies, you know, 12 Angry Men is up there in the pantheon of, you know, the godfather of um, Apocalypse Now. It's it, the greatest films ever made. So it's kind of a weighty subject. I hope we're all ready to talk about it. I, I know that I'm going to definitely not give it enough credit <laughs> as I go oh, forward. Yeah. It's almost impossible to give it enough credit. It's an incredible film. Yeah, yeah. What what, do, what did you guys yeah. think uh, uh, upon watching it? All right, so uh, watching this movie again, it holds up really well. Like, there's a lot of older movies that I've watched throughout the years where I, when I watch them again, there's a lot that hasn't aged well, whereas almost everything in this movie has still maintained, uh, like, its masterpiece vision. Uh, what do you think, Lenny? Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, there's there's a number of things, uh, minor things that definitely date it um, and and frame it in that in that time. But um, you know, you know, uh, smoking indoors, <laughs> <laughs> all the handkerchiefs. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's uh, timeless themes. Um, and you know, I, I love to argue, and this is a movie all about arguing in one room. So it's my ideal movie. Yeah, actually, um, sort of how all of us sort of came together to know each other is in countless loud uh sometimes pointless arguments sometimes, about movies like these well, sometimes I say pointless. sometimes because to say otherwise would hurt my feelings sometimes uh, pointed sometimes pointed <laughs> i say that every once in a while there was a reason why we were arguing we cared about it a little bit more yeah <laughs> um but so this is like a perfect movie this is the this is arguing the movie um and it's also arguing about the most important thing that we could argue about it's about social justice it's about capital punishment it's about weighing the balance of a man's life versus what it is that he's done. Um, so to sort of start us all off as we usually do, we're going to go to Jesse, but I think Jesse's got a couple of uh, tricks up his sleeve for this corner. Yeah. So I'm going to go over the plot, but I can't really go over the plot because it is just one giant argument. So basically the setup is, is there's this kid on trial 
and uh, there's a mountain of evidence stacked against him. And what happens in this movie is uh, everybody thinks he's guilty, and then they're all slowly convinced he's not guilty. So the mount. So I'm going to go over just the mountain of evidence against him, and then who all twelve jurors are. Uh, so the mountain of evidence starts out with uh, first off the murder weapon. The murder weapon is uh, a unique switchblade, which is identified in the courtroom as the weapon that was used to stab the victim. And it was seen that uh, the kid, um, the defendant, bought that weapon on that day, and it was identified in the courtroom as the weapon that he bought by a shop owner and his friends. Furthermore, the kid is supposedly really good with a knife. So that makes sense. Second, the kid has motive. Apparently his father beat him throughout the years and he just snapped this time, came back and killed his father. Three, the kid has no alibi. He says he was at a movie and doesn't remember who was in the movie or what the movie was. Four, there is a woman witness who wakes up and she sees the killing across her bedroom through the windows of a moving train. Five, at that same time, a, an old man who lives below the murder, he says he hears someone say, I'm going to kill you. Split second later, body hits the floor. And then he walks out to his door and he sees somebody fleeing the scene. And th both the woman and the old man identify the murderer as the son. All right. So uh, there's a few plot uh, like holes that are found with all five of these theories. First off, for the murder weapon... They find that it's not really a unique knife. You can find it in any shop because one of the jurors actually buys it. Chilling scene. Uh, really, really, really it, good scene. I, I love that when when it, it's it's like classic, almost Hitchcockian, right? Yeah. When he takes mm -hmm. the knife out and stabs it right into the table next yeah. to the other knife. Click. Yeah. Yeah. And after he just spent all this time setting up how rare it was, and it was like, oh yeah, it was a switchblade knife. You can't buy that anywhere. The shopkeeper said he never sells it. He's like, two blocks away, I bought this. Oh, continue, continue. Oh, and then what's what's also perfect is later on in the movie when someone pulls out that knife and is just like, he killed the man with this knife. And they're like, that's not the knife. That's the, uh, the knife that uh, he pulled out of his pocket earlier. Yeah. So great. Um, so yeah, uh, the second hole that they, um, that they point out is in his motive, just because the father hits him a lot doesn't, that would mean that if the father hits him for, you know, the millionth time in the kid's life, why on earth would that trigger him to go and kill him when he's already been hit so many times? Everyone uh, has a breaking point. Everybody apparently has a breaking point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, third, no alibi. Just because a kid can't remember where he was uh, doesn't really mean that that's damning to him because lots of people can't remember the exact movies that they saw or who starred in them when they've seen, uh, especially after they've experienced such a traumatic event as seeing their father dead. I mean, speak or, for yourself. <laughs> yeah, you remember every movie that you've ever seen uh, and the day that you saw it, too. Probably, yeah, yeah, Probably. yeah, definitely. Yeah. I don't but, think it's a superpower. I expect you all to have that. <laughs> Are you telling me you don't? I'm not saying I don't, but I'm also not saying I do. Well, that's not helpful for right now. Uh, reasonable I'm doubt, man. I, reasonable doubt is what I'm saying. It's possible. I have IMDb. That's all. <laughs> My memory is the Internet Movie Database. Uh, yeah. Um, third, for no alibi. Yeah, so no alibi. That's how they solved that. For fourth, uh, the the woman witness. 
the jurors remember that she has indents on her face, which means that she wears glasses. And she was not wearing glasses during the trial. And she probably wasn't wearing glasses when she was sleeping that night and woke up and looked out her window. And five, there's the old man. The old man's testimony is called into question because of the woman's testimony. He says the the train zipped by. So how could the old man have heard that argument going on when the train zipped by? Because the train is really loud. And also the man has a little limp. And he says he got to his door in 15 seconds. And when the jurors try the same setup in their courtroom, or not courtroom, but little like deliberation room, uh, it takes 45 seconds. So that throws. Okay, fine. (laughs) Gotta be precise, man. Gotta be precise. They were precise. True. It's true. They were very precise. Actually, I think it might have been 44. Mm. Mm. Uh, no, I don't think so. I think it was forty. I'm gonna go with forty two. I think it was forty. Just, just my just to my secretary is telling me 12. right now it was one minute forty six seconds. We were That's off a really guys, long time. I, I think your secretary might really <laughs> find a new job. Was 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 he lying on the floor and pulling himself along by his fingernails? <laughs> you know, at that I would believe it. Had I mean, like, just the way they were describing it, he sounded like he was about to die at any moment. <laughs> Dude, Look, the guy just had important. a stroke. Yeah, he just he wanted, just to, wanted be to be important. Yeah. Come on. He just wanted to be important. His name so was that's... Robert Paulson. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's all the evidence. And now the, the 12 jurors who are the 12 characters who are in this movie are number one, the foreman who tries to lead everybody and constantly fails. Uh, there's juror number two. Um, he's the ambitious kid who also voices Piglet in the Winnie the Pooh series. Oh my gosh, Many that's times. amazing! Many times, it's incredible. John oh, is that's the, so the true. legendary actor John Fiedler, uh, most well known for just being Piglet. Oh, that's wonderful! I didn't know yeah. that. I, I, I love him. Like I, I, so many times watching, just brief, brief tangent. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Sidebar. Um, I was watching this movie and so many times my wife turns is like pokes her head around the corner is like, is that Piglet? And, go, it's Piglet. and a few minutes later he's like, You 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 can't talk to me like that. And she goes, Is that Piglet? I'm like, it's Piglet. It's the, totally it, Piglet. It's so funny seeing this 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 middle-aged man with these spectacles and this this demeanor say these things and talk about like justice and, and he, he made a good point, you know. He made a good point. How how, how could he have known? And it's all I could get in my head is just like little piglet, just oh de- 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 deer. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, and he's so perfect for that role because honestly, he he's just playing piglet in this movie. This is yeah. just a little guy who wants to fit in with all the big players and has no idea how, but is trying to make a stand for something. Which so he's basically whenever I think of this juror, I think of the piglet guy. Um, and there's juror number three. Yeah. He's the really angry dad, the antagonist for the rest of the movie, basically. Uh, there's juror number four. He's the ultra logical juror. Uh, juror number five. He is uh, the guy that grew up in the slums and he sort of represents minority figures, it seems like. Uh, there's juror number six. Juror number six is the working man. Juror number seven is the salesman who has the baseball cards in his pocket. Juror number eight is Henry Fonda. He's the star of the show, the guy that casts doubt on everything. Juror number nine is the old man. Juror number 10 is the racist old man. Juror number 11 is the immigrant. 
and juror number 12 is the advertiser, basically the guy that's bored with everything that's going on, is constantly playing games and goofing off. And that's about a summary of the movie, I think. Yeah, I think you did a really good job. Uh, This is a hard movie to summarize because you literally kind of have to go beat by beat, scene by scene, um, Mm -hmm. interaction by interaction. And, uh, well... That the most boring way to do that is if we were all to just do it ourselves. Um, although it might be fun for us, we'd have a blast. But I, I, I call not being the racist juror. I call <laughs> the angry dad. Oh, you want to be? Angry I want to be the angry dad. I think you'd be a good angry. Dad. I think I'd be a really good angry dad. I'm not really an angry dad, just for all the all the listeners. Yeah, I'm a, no, I'm no, a pretty no, happy person. You're generally a happy person. I think. I mean, I've seen you be an angry dad, but I think it's normal. Don't ask my kids. <laughs> They can't talk. <laughs> also, don't talk to his kids. Weirdos. Um, but uh, going over to Tony here, our, our guest, uh, uh, if you would like to judge, uh, you know, sit in adjudication over Jesse's um, sort of summation, what would you give it on a scale of one to ten? Um, seems seems like a yeah, a good summary. Um, no, I know I did not ask for a, a, a qualitative <laughs> opinion. I wanted a one to ten opinion. How about a twelve? You oh, oh, out of ten. I, I like I like people who also go over the uh, the the set limits. So, sort of moving forward, I, we usually after a summation, uh, we try and move into nostalgia. I think this this one will be a little bit faster than what we usually do because um, I, I'll just start us out. Uh, I came to this this as an actual kind of like a play in high school before I saw it as a movie. Um, I had the book by Reginald Rose. Um, I had the beautiful like Penguin Classics edition. And I was studying it for some sort of drama class in high school. And I remember breaking it down and, and going sort of beat by beat through it um, and just really gaining an appreciation for how drama works and how to write multiple characters with different points of view. Um, it's just a really wonderfully written piece of work that never neglects a character. It's never boring. It's always um, compelling. You always want to know what someone else is going to say. And the right person always speaks when they need to. Um, I don't think enough has been said, mm-hmm. at least recently, about how well staged this movie is. Um, so I don't have a ton of nostalgia, except for it being kind of a, uh, I don't know, what's a good word for it? Like like a Rosetta Stone, kind of like a founding text, like a Dead Sea Scroll for me of this is what I'm going to base a lot of stuff off of. This is cool. uh, what I believe is great writing and in, in my life, I will compare everything to something like this, especially like a chamber piece, something this um, claustrophobic and this, uh, I don't know, um, intensely staged. Uh, as for the movie itself, I mean, Sitting Lumet is flexing his muscles here. Um, it's his first uh, major theatrical release. Um, he later went on to have one of the most illustrious careers of anyone that I can think of. Um, and this really is it's not really a young man's movie. It's a timeless man's movie. It's uh, this is an astonishing achievement if you're 25 and this is an astonishing achievement if you're 65. It doesn't matter how old you are when you make this. This is the biggest calling card you could ever throw at Hollywood. I made 12 Angry Men. Um, yeah, so that's really where I come to it from. Not a lot of emotion for me, just a lot of admiration and a lot of uh, a lot of hero worship for Reginald Rose and for Sidney Lumet. Um, and also for, for, uh, for Henry Fonda, you know, doing his his shtick here better than he has ever done it. I would say. Um, what, what do you think, Mike? Yeah. I mean, I came to this, I, I think I have a little bit more nostalgia around it because I came to it. I think I must've been 10 or 11 probably. Um, 
and I, uh, I was over at my, my friend's house and I, I had a, there was, uh, I had a couple of good family friends and, and their father kind of stood in for my father in a lot of ways when, when I was growing up and he was a lawyer. And so he loved this movie a lot and he could not wait to show it to his kids. And I was fortunate enough to, to be kind of included in the moment when he showed it to them. And I remember sitting down, you know, 10 or 11 or 12 or, or something like that and being like, okay, what is this 12 angry men? I have no idea what I'm, what I'm in for. I'd never seen anything like it before in my life. And it blew my mind. It, it, it was so cool to see. And he just loved it. He loved watching the, uh, the jurors just interact. I mean, everyone does, right? It's so cool to see them see the, see the interplay. And he brought just the, the love of the legal system, the love of uh, the judiciary system, the right to a fair trial and being judged by your peers. Um, that's so important and such a massive part of being an American. One of the things that we, you know, we, we take for granted a lot of the time. Um, but, uh, that, that scene where the immigrant talks about how incredible, how incredible it is, is something that he pointed out to us after the movie and said, Hey, you know, when you get older, you're going to get called for jury duty. And I want you to remember this scene. And I do every time I'm like, Oh man, 12 angry men. I, I think of it every time. And I'm, I'm excited. I want to get on a jury. I never have been. Same. Um, I think it probably wait, won't wait, be that intense. Briefly, but... briefly. Sidebar. Now, out of the four of us, who has actually served on a jury? I'm going to go first and say no. Mike? No, almost twice. Jesse? Yeah, same as Mike. No, almost twice. Letney or Tony? I'm not sure I've ever been summoned. Uh, maybe once, but yo, I've never served. I think he would know if you've ah. been some. <laughs> I mean, I have a vague memory of maybe like while I was at in school, and I had the you know the the school excuse, but I don't remember definitively. So I'm guessing I haven't been summoned. Probably, probably not. Or or maybe I don't know. I I have been summoned. I've been summoned once. My wife's been summoned once. Um, I I got out of it at the time. I couldn't afford to take the time off to do it. Um. I wish I could take, I wish I could do it. Yeah. I, I've been summoned like every year since I turned 18. I've, <laughs> I've gone, I've gone like 12 times. Wow. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Seriously. Oh my gosh. Okay. Maybe seven, but That's I mean, still an it's insane crazy. Number. Yeah. Yeah, should, it is. You yeah. should ask somebody on the governmental level to like, take it easy on you for a little bit. No, I like, I really want to be on a jury. I really don't want I'm to never going to get on a jury. I'm never like, I'm never going to. I'm one of the few people who's like, I am so in for this. You're going to be like, so eager and be like, yeah. I would please love, please, please, like, please, love. please let me do this. But, you know, um, Jesse, uh, what do you feel? How, how did you come to this? What's your nostalgia of rating? What's your factor here? Uh, so I first watched this movie with like my dad and brothers. And I was, I think I was in like elementary school. I was super into it. Uh, I loved the movie. I loved, it was like my first real encounter with like a mob mentality where everybody thinks one thing. And then realizing that just because the majority of people believe it does not necessarily make it true. Um, and that idea was utterly fascinating to me uh, both then and now uh, and has basically stayed with me the rest of my life uh, that just because everybody believes something doesn't mean there's not something to be said um, on the other side of things. And even if nobody else is saying it, 
um, maybe you need to be the Henry Fonda and take the stand and be the guy who considers other ideas and be humble enough to do that. So that's basically where I'm at. Uh, it's been super impactful for me in my life, but uh, I, I don't think I worship it the same way you did, Vito, because you're throwing like a crown on this thing. It's kind of impressive. I, I think it's it's one of the greatest um, American uh teleplays i guess that's how it's classified on wikipedia um it is just one of the single greatest pieces of drama i've ever seen written um but letney uh where did you come at this from is this was this your first time your second time do you have a history with this so growing up uh, my family watched a lot of old movies uh in fact i probably watched more movies growing up from the 50s than from the 90s um but for some reason this one never came up um and there's a lot of, you know, like Roman Holiday and I guess a lot more romantic classics. Um, so we never watched this one growing up. Uh, in grad school, uh, we had a lot of, especially near the end of our semesters, we'd have a big project. And we, uh, a couple of us who were procrastinators, would end up spending like three or four days in a row, uh, like pulling all-nighters three or four days in a row. and just completely sleep deprived uh, to get our projects done. Uh, so to stay awake and stay focused, because uh, a lot of the work is a little bit mindless. Um it just, it's a lot of uh, mechanical stuff without a lot of requiring a lot of thought process. Sure. So you'd have a movie playing in the background to keep you awake. Um, and so that's the first time I watched this. Um, and you know, so there was a lot of movies that uh, are good for that. Like, um, you know, like Glenn Glary and Ross, like, like dialogue heavy movies. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Just, just like but, every time a great scene is on, you can sort of like turn to the TV and just zone in for a right. second and then leave. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say is that, um, you know, there's a lot of movies that you can just kind of watch and kind of half pay attention to. But this movie has so many striking uh, emotional moments that just pull you in. I really didn't do a lot of work for the hour and a half that I was watching this. It was probably (laughs) two or three in the morning in the basement of our architecture building. That's awesome. So, yeah, that's that was the first time I watched it um, about three years ago. But I've seen it um, probably half a dozen times since. Um, I definitely agree with Vito. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, I, I just can't believe that this sort of thing just uh, just ex- exists out there, and it, it's so well written, and and everyone can can please just like a, a few praise about it um, because this is something I don't think that can be really overpraised. Um, e- everything down from Silly Lumet's like uh, claustrophobic direction um, to the pitch perfect casting to the wonderful dialogue to the incredible like set dressing and and costuming. Um, the, the gradual stains of sweat that appear underneath everyone's arms and on their necks and like beads up on their upper lip. Um, it's so visceral. It's, it's so intense. Did, did you notice Henry Fonda has a, a white suit and, uh, uh, Lee J. Cobbs, Lee J. Cobbs or Lee J. Cobbs? Lee. Lee, Lee J. Cobbs. He's got a black suit. Yeah. Which I thought was, was cool. It was like a white hat, white black, hat black hat. Yeah. It was very much. And, and I know Henry Fonda did a lot of cowboy he did stuff he did and uh, what's actually kind of funny just like a quick digression is that uh um i guess maybe like henry fonda's two of his most famous westerns right he's got uh i believe he's got 310 to yuma and then he's got once upon a time in the west yeah and once upon a time in the west is he plays uh one of the most iconic memorable villains of all time and he plays him like a good guy which is really bizarre it's so i I love that movie i love i love i love him in that movie yeah What's yeah. his, his name? Is like, is it Frank? Idea. Is it Frank? I think it is. I think it's yeah. Frank. Yeah. Uh, someone will practice for a while. But he's got a black hat. He does. Yeah. He, he's really, really damn evil. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, okay, so we got down to where everyone's uh, where everyone's come from on this, and uh, Jesse, I think that you had something you wanted to talk about. Yeah, so I'm going to do a sidebar, and this time I don't want the sidebar to end. It's going to go the rest of the podcast if if we can, um, and it's a what if scenario, and the what if scenario I have is what if you found out Twelve Angry Men the second remake that I know of is going to come out next year. Who are going to play all jurors? So as we go through and we go through scenes and we go through uh, the different jurors that are, uh, that we're talking about, I, we can like throw in some substitutions that we think um, that we think would be good. And I think a good place to start might be the main juror, juror number eight. Um, Yeah. I think his name is, actually davis he's the only one or only one of two that are named yes uh so i had a couple picks for him for him um but i, I think my favorite more i thought about it was would be matt damon Interesting. and the reason why i would say that is because uh juror number eight is supposed to be like the everyday man right somebody who can who you can be like uh, who is not re- just only slightly better than you are. He's slightly better just because he acts better, not because he has the movie star qualities. And I think Matt Damon can dress himself down to to look like that. And also somebody who is very humble. Um, and there's very few actors, the more I thought about it, who can pull off the humbleness, who can pull off a Henry Fonda saying, I will vote guilty if everybody else in this room does. Uh, the more I thought of like a lot of actors trying to pull that off, the more I found it like not believable. But Matt Damon has he's he's super articulate. Uh, when you say when he says something, uh, you want to listen to it and you believe it. And uh, he's also a guy that can persuade, just like juror number eight does in this one. Uh, what do you guys think about that, Lenny? Lenny, what are you thinking? Yeah, I like it. I mean, I was uh, I was approaching it on similar lines. I, I, mean, I think the the character is definitely defined by um, that kind of calm, quiet presence. Um, being a leader without being uh, overtly a leader. Um, so yeah, that that kind of calm influence. Um, so I I had similar yeah. picks. Uh, I think my number one pick for him was Mark Ruffalo. Um, interesting. That's really Ooh, interesting. really cool. Okay, he, another one I liked was not, uh, not your number eight. Okay. Yeah, another one uh, I thought had similar energy. Um, maybe not the authority, but I thought maybe Jake Gyllenhaal. I could see it. I could see it. I don't think he's old enough. I, I was thinking about him too, and and he's so... I think that Henry Fonda at the time it is for was... Late I think he was in his 50s because he was born in 1905, I believe. And oh, okay, yeah, no, definitely in So he's almost 60. Wow. Um, oh, wow. Or he just looks he, incredible. He's, he's 65. Yeah, he looks he looks younger than that. Um, but so that was, that was something I kept running up against. Uh, yeah. I think, I think yeah. if you're going to do, but, Jake but, but I mean, that's, you know, you, you can, you can say who you want. I mean, I, if you're <laughs> going to do Jake Gyllenhaal, I would say that you'd have to sort of, um, you'd have to scale the rest of the cast down too. Cause otherwise then you, you sort of like, at least in my mind, you sort of run into, um, a, a different sort of thing than what's going on in the original play, which is, uh, you run into like an old young kind of thing, um, which is totally cool. And would be really interesting. Another added layer. Um, I think that both of those picks, though, if I were to go for one of them, I would go 100% for Mark Ruffalo. He has that quiet dignity and that charisma 
to carry that along. That's a wonderful pick, dude. Yeah, yeah he was definitely uh, number one, and you know he's got a he's definitely got that age thing. You know, you have the the grace double and uh, just that quiet presence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Okay, I, I'll, I'll, I'll change it. Yeah, Mark Ruffalo. I'm down for that. Who who did you have again? Remind me, Jesse. I'm sorry. Matt Damon. Matt Damon. Uh, Matt, Matt Damon. Okay. Uh, Matt Damon fits more in the age range, I think. But um, I I think, and this is this is it's gonna shock you when I give you like my answer for this because it's a lot different. But um, I I think that I I'm not gonna abandon my choice. I think I have a great choice. But I think that Mark Ruffalo fits this Henry Fonda energy a lot better than Matt Damon does. And I'm not saying Matt Damon wouldn't be good. I think he'd be obviously incredibly magnetic. Um, but there's just something about Mark Ruffalo, that easy charm that Matt Damon, while he does possess charm, it's not of the everyman. Like he's not Matt Damon from Goodwill Hunting anymore. Yeah. He's he, kind of a weirdo. A little, he's a yes. little weird. He's a little funky. <laughs> yes. Like that's, he's, he's, he's got, he's got he some decided to go that way, <laughs> which is kind of cool. I, I like that he decided to do that. I think those are two actually surprisingly yeah. radically different takes. What, what do you got, Mike? Add it to the pot. Okay, I'm gonna add these to the pot. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not even 100 sold on them. I think Matt Damon or, or Mark, Ru- Mark Ruffalo would be better. But I mean, thinking about Henry Fonda, where he is in his career, he's right in the middle of smack dab middle of an incredible career uh, in in Hollywood. He is a big name star, and so the two names that come to mind are George Clooney and Brad Pitt. Interesting. Um, in terms of just star power, in terms of uh, um, just presence on screen and in terms of their ability to, to hold the screen, but also their ability to really act um, and not, uh, not take away from, from other people. I think that they've both done um, enough where they're not, you know, the cent- the center point um, that, that they could pull it off. What, what a, if, third, what, what, a third pick. Oh, okay. I do have a third pick, which okay, is a little bit I, out I, of left I see, field. I see all of us are like, yeah, I know. Jump on it. I, I, I know. I know. And there's a lot to jump on. And the third pick um, would be uh, Idris Elba. I think Idris Elba would do a really oh. interesting job. It brings in an entirely new dynamic. Um, he's so intense. But he's, I know, he's got, he's yeah. got some intensity, but like in The Wire, he, he, he shows up in The Wire, String right? Bell. Yeah, Stringer Bell on the wire. He has sort of this pleasant quality to him, but this intensity underlying, uh, <laughs> very intense underlying, um, that I think that he could corral and, and bring a, a really interesting look, sort of presence. Look, to I, the role. I, I think you could pass a bowl of oatmeal to, to Idris Elba and he'd make it interesting. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I love Idris Elba. Um, so, so, but I do want to talk about, and I want to kick it over to you guys too, but I do want to say, um, I think that I would go, I mean, this is foreshadowing my pick a little bit. Maybe you yeah. guys can guess it for now, but I think that George Clooney and Brad Pitt are simply too charming. That that could be true. I and I think I think it actually shares a it, it shares some DNA with the Matt Damon pick. Like it's just they're almost too likable. Um and so of course we're not coming at this with with the the mindset the audience had in 1957 of knowing Peter uh Henry Fonda and, and understanding where he comes from and, and who he is in the cultural consciousness. So we can't know. But looking at it now, and I see him when he makes the moves he does, they are they are surprising. Um it's not that I don't expect him to be the good guy, but any one of these people could be the good guy. And that's how I'm coming at this from. And there's definitely a generational age gap here. Hey, not your, not your grandfather's movies. What 
Brad Pitt or, or George Clooney could bring to this sort of role. I think, I think it's too nice. What do you guys think? Yeah, I think Brad Pitt and George Clooney are, I mean, the thing about Henry Fonda is that Henry Fonda doesn't steal the screen. Like that's, I, I was looking for a lot of, a lot more humility in the actor, somebody who can also fade to the background at any given moment. And anytime I thought of like George Clooney or Brad Pitt, or even like Leonardo DiCaprio, all great actors. Um, anytime I thought of them in this scene or in this movie, I, they're, they're unable to blend in with everybody else. So they're unable to become like the same as everybody else at the table. Um, so I, that's, I think, I think Matt Damon does a better job with that, which is why I picked him. But yeah, I just, I think Brad Pitt and George Clooney are too iconic almost to have sitting in that seat. I think that's fair. I mean, I, I, I'm okay with that. Yeah. So I think, um, I mean, I really like the, the um, Idris Elba pick just cause I love Idris Elba. Um, I do think he's probably too intense for this role. Um, and I think I think Jesse's right about George Clooney just being too charismatic and um, having too big of a presence. I think there's a way that I guess I'm thinking of uh, killing him softly for Brad Pitt, and I wonder if yeah. that his him in that role where he's more subdued and um, yeah, just less emotional, kind of more flat. Uh, maybe maybe he has the the range to to accomplish this role. I, well, I, I guess I was kind of thinking of him in, in like Ad Astra, where he kind of doesn't really have any emotion at all. Yeah, um, to the detriment and, of the movie. Yeah, I mean, like, like we're not talking about that movie. I don't really want to. Uh, although I guess that is kind of a, a dad it's movie. Definitely it's a definitely dad, a dad it's movie. It's definitely only about dads. It's also a movie I also don't want to talk about. <laughs> but, I mean, he does do a really good job of not having any emotion and not being like, I'm the, I don't know. No, no, he's a screen stealer. I mean, he does, it's all just his face. He is the emotion of a chalkboard being pressure washed. <laughs> like, there's nothing going on. So, oh, I love it. I love it. You can be completely blank. And, and, and you're right. But also, I don't think that's what's needed here. I think, I, I, I think. I, I, okay, I think like somewhere between there and burn after reading, I think yeah. you could do it. <laughs> <laughs> somewhere between Ad Astra and burn after reading, there lies a Brad. I, I mean, I mean, right, right there, like that's his range, right? That's like good. nothing and everything. Yeah. He's he's got the range. Right. He is that yeah. good of an actor. So that's I, 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 I know he is one of the most iconic actors to have ever lived. So is Henry Fonda. That's true. What was Henry Fonda? That's that. I guess that's where I'm coming from with it. I think you're right. I think so. Um, so, so to I, I didn't. Yeah, I, 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 I want to hear. Act. I want to hear vetoes. So, so I am going to break a little bit of rules here to sort of move this move this uh, endless sidebar here, Jesse. Um, <laughs> I'm going to give you. Uh, I did not cast all 12 jurors as I know everyone else did. What about the rural juror? I did not cast one rural juror. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what I wanted to lead with is for juror number eight, I think it's Denzel. Oh, that's a good one. I think oh. it's Denzel. I, I I don't know. I don't know of a single actor that could be anyone but the Henry Fonda of this generation and even eclipses him, I think in terms of legacy, in terms of body of work, in terms of ability, he's done everything. He's done everything. And he's got so much gravitas. He, he, he's probably our greatest working actor. 
I say that because Daniel Day-Lewis is apparently not working anymore. Yeah. Um, That's who I would have said in another. In another world. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. I, 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 think, think, I think you're on to something. But yeah. but here here no no this this pick is is it so first of all like Mike started out with Idris Elba um, but this is a this is a race swap um, I think the play doesn't demand it but it's very open to it um, so it, that is very dependent on upon who he is facing and that's why I want to break the rules a little bit because we have uh, the two jurors that are sort of um, intensely aligned against him now I'm not counting the super logical juror he's not against juror number eight. He is just, he, he just wants to make sure he's making a logical decision, right? Um, he's not an antagonist. Mm-hmm. But as far as I can see, I think it's juror number three and juror number 10. Is juror number 10 the really racist one? I think so. Yeah, yes. Yeah, so juror number three is Lee J. Cobb and juror number 10 is Ed Bagley. Um, they are the, the principal antagonists, I think, to juror number eight, Okay. So Denzel is here. He's my lock. Um, I think that no one could could pull this off like he could. Um, but for juror number three, I have Kurt Russell. Huh. Um, I think that he's old enough. I think he's big enough. I, I think that he's 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 angry enough. Um, he's belligerent enough that he could pull this through. I mean, you'd only have to like look at the hateful eight to see how he is in his, in his later career. Um, and then for juror number 10, I have Josh Brolin. Josh Brolin? I have Josh okay. Brolin. I don't think he needs to be old. Josh Brolin, he's got so much physicality, though. And and yes. like juror number 10 has, I mean, he's <laughs> he's big, but he's like, he's voluptuous. Like, he's, he's fat. <laughs> yeah. he's, uh, but we're yeah, already gender okay. swapping. Oh, okay. sorry, not gender swapping. Uh, we have so, our, our so, guy. I want to say for Denzel, hmm. like I think that's a good pick, but I I still think he's got too big of a like look at me like star quality to him that I I think Mark Mark Ruffalo would honestly be my new pick now. Just thinking about it, I just think he fits this whole juror number eight style a little better. But Denzel would be a second pick for me, I think. Um, but and also going to Josh Brolin, I think I see why you have him there, especially. Like it's it's really easy to think of him as a villain now, um, but I think my number one pick for for this character would be John Goodman because he's so big and verbose and just able to like talk and and it sounds like he's shouting, which is where I think uh, John Goodman would come in as a good fit. What do you guys think? Sorry, uh, I, I think Denzel is a good pick. Um, I think he does have. Um, that quality. Um, the problem is that whenever I think of Denzel, I think of Training Day, which just doesn't fit at all. Um, but I agree with John Goodman. He was on my list for uh, for Ed Begley. Oh, really? Yeah. Cool. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I guess my problem with Josh Brolin is just, he just seems too virile and um, to play this kind of like it almost seems like the character of Ed Begley is like someone who who the world has passed by, who hasn't yeah. caught up. You know, someone kind of, who's literally like sniffling the whole time. Yeah, just this kind of pathetic yeah. character, uh, and, and I don't know if Josh way, would, has that pathetic, you know. Then I would, then I would, I would propose then uh, uh, switch them, switch Kurt Russell and Josh Brolin. I can see that more. I can definitely see it more. I thought about Josh Brolin. I don't think he works in this movie. I don't think he fits. Why? Why not? 
I think because his, I mean, his virility is, he's just very virile. Like he walks on, on screen and you're like, oh man, that's Josh Brolin. Yeah. Like he's such a man. I want to be that guy. And the thing that but, I think is like most famous about this for movie, playing Thanos. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And, but I mean, a million things. Um, but, but like most famously Thanos, I, su- I suppose that is what he's <laughs> in the highest grossing film of all time. That's true. <laughs> that's true. But I mean, I guess the thing about this movie, the thing about this film that one of the many things that I love about this film is that all of the characters, it, it, it and one of the things that I think is hard about like picking, picking famous actors to replace everyone is that there, there are really only what two or three famous, famous, famous actors in it. And everyone else, they're in a million movies, but they're just, they're character actors. They're there. They have a couple of scenes, then they, and they're gone. They're all people that you're like, I'm, I'm this person. They're not necessarily people that you re- you look up to. The only person you look up to is, is Henry Fonda. Um, and, uh, only, as you said, only slightly. You look up to him slightly because you're like, oh man, I really hope when the time comes, I have the courage to be that guy. So you look up to him only because he's there and he's done it. And he gives you something to to say like, hey, I, I could be him. I could be on my best day. Everyone else, he's convincing to also be there on their best day. And so that's part of why I think Josh Brolin doesn't quite fit any of the characters because he's so far above what um he, he just has a presence that's that's far above like me on my best day maybe that's a personal thing i, I feel like i feel like you okay. may be overestimating I, I, like yeah. josh brolin's influence considering you just tried to cast george clooney as, uh, as, as george <laughs> number eight. like no i mean like, I, I don't know his like his physicality like his his i don't know what, do you, what, what were you gonna say jesse uh, no, I I think I'm I'm mostly with Mike there. Like, all right for for my picks for number three, I, I had a couple that I thought of, um, and again, I tried to go for people that I normally think of as villains because I, I think only that really works for number three personally. Uh, so for number three, my second choice is Brian Cranston, who could do the slow buildup of at first That's you great. think he might yeah. be reasonable, and then he comes in and he's pretty angry and belligerent and unreasonable. Um, Why do you guys my, not think that Josh per- Brolin could do that? No, I mean, I, I'm sorry. I, I, that, yeah. That's a really wonderful pick. And that's why I want to stack my pick next to it. It's like, that's okay. really cool. That's really good. But what is it that Brian Cranston can do that Josh Brolin can't do? Or why couldn't you believe that he's a good enough I, actor to sell that okay, role? Wait, I, I don't think it's about the actors. Okay, so it's a little bit about the actors, but more about the characters that they're trying to play. And this character that they're trying to play, it, it's... Juror number three is that old guy that you see on the street. And you don't want to be that guy. But when you first talk to him, you think he might be kind of reasonable, but ends up being like very angry and something you totally don't want to be. And the thing that, I, that with Josh Bullen coming in he i he seems like somebody i immediately kind of identify with and again maybe he has the depth to not be that uh but i think it's better oh yeah oh i i know he does i know he does but i think it's better for this particular character that somebody comes in that you just don't want to be anything like maybe yeah i guess i i guess i disagree with you jesse that that lee lee cobb is is a villain um, I mean, he's definitely the antagonist, but 
I don't think that like my picks weren't framing him in, in terms of villainous actors. It seems like, I mean, he's a complicated character, um, but it seems like for most of the movie, um, he's definitely fighting hard for one side, but you know, he repeatedly says that he doesn't have a bone to pick. Um, and uh, even be- before his final uh, rant where he eventually kind of reveals what his true, uh, true intention or true uh, motives are, um, he, he, he kind of talks about, he logically goes through the argument and his argument makes some sense. Um, so to me, it seems like the character is not so much as a, as a villain who's trying to, um, you know, put this kid in a lecture chair. It's more that he's this logical person who is almost completely ruled by his anger um, and by this, these demons of his past with his son. Um, so I guess, I guess I went in a slightly different direction. Um, cause I was looking for people who give a great rant, um, and can <laughs> capture that anger. So I was thinking, uh, either like Russell Crowe or, uh, maybe Al Pacino or like Ray Liotta. Oh, oh Dude, I didn't even yeah. tap the well of the Pacine. Yeah. I, I think those are all great choices. Look, look, look. Yeah. I, I, I guess just, I was I, thinking of, uh, Al Pacino and, uh, Glenn Glary and Ross. Where he's Ooh. like, where did you learn your trade? Ooh, Pacino. Yeah. That part. yeah, he'd be good. I, I think I think uh I was I was going for when I was doing my thing is that uh I think that Russell Crowe is so intimidating. He's such a big man. You know, like I mean we're talking about about Josh Brolin being virile and all that. I I I, I personally do see the peel, I guess, but when I think about like a guy that is just so wholly and totally both toxically and not masculine. Um, I'm thinking about Russell Crowe because the guy is mm-hmm. packing on the weight, but he is ang- as angry as he's ever been. I mean, I don't know if any of you guys saw the recent Instagram ads for his new movie unhinged, which is surprisingly one of the movies that's reopening cinemas. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it's really rage filled and incredibly yeah. obscene and very, very nasty. Yeah, I, th- I was like, I can't believe that Russell Crowe was like, yeah, I'm going to make this movie. This is going to be good for my image. Yes, because he doesn't <laughs> give a shit. Yeah, I, like he, he's I now reached the point where that. he doesn't care. Yeah, and I think it's a matter of time before we get to Josh Brolin doing that. But when I yeah. said when I said that about like maybe switch him, um, I, I do mean that I I am down for an older white or or I don't know in Al Pacino's case slightly tinged man um, that is mad. And it's mad about a lot of things and it's mad about his life and it's mad about society. And uh, I'm down with that energy. I I think that, I think that between the two of them, I don't know if I could pick a favorite one because Russell Crowe can do stuff that Al Pacino can't and Al Pacino can dial it up to 11. Like no one else can too. Um, I'm I'm torn. What's your favorite? If you had to like flip a coin, what's your favorite? I think Russell Crowe was my first pick, Uh, but I do, I do really like uh, Joss Brolin. Okay, Jesse. I do have one more pick who who I consider, and this would be a very different movie if he was juror number three, which is Willem Dafoe playing a kind of almost crazy, like he comes in, you think he's pretty reasonable, and then he just turns on a dime, goes super angry uh, at just being able to do that throughout the rest of the movie. I, I, I have to say, I have to say real quick, uh, this this is not a role that Willem Dafoe is a stranger to. Um, Lee Jacob plays this man um, speaking as the as the father. Um, he plays this role as a man gradually sort of unspooling, 
Um, he's incredibly good at that. I don't think there's there's a turn on a dime in the character in the play or in the movie. Um, it's a very gradual reveal. And Willem Dafoe is one of the most accomplished actors that we have. And I think that he would handle that role with, with beautiful aplomb. Um, I don't think that he's like the, he would not play this role as the crazy guy that we see in Spider-Man or anything. Um, previous episode, listen in. Um, but he would play it with a great deal of humanity because he's a very humanitarian uh, kind of actor in his approach. Um, I don't think he'd play it cartoonishly. Uh, I think it, that would actually be out of the three actors that we named. I think that he would play it the most, the, the most downplayed. He'd, he'd pitch it the lowest out of everyone. Wow. That's interesting. Uh, yeah. That's a little different take than what I was thinking, but yeah, I, I think he, I think he would do that as well. Like I think Willem Dafoe could actually take it multiple different ways. That's fair. So, yeah. On, on that note, what do you guys think about uh, J.K. Simmons? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I can't, I can't like in, but, but I don't think Whiplash is what this movie needs. I, I, I think that no one can be the standout. That's the thing about this cast is that if you, if you like, for, for what yeah. I did, for instance, when I cast Denzel, I, I was looking to, to, to sort of push the dramatic structure but to push it in that way, to, to cast someone so charismatic, you have to cast equally charismatic people around him. Um, and that way, the whole movie sort of works together. You, you either cast working men actors in working men roles, or you cast movie stars in movie star roles. Um, this, this structure does not admit of two movie stars and a bunch of character actors. Like it but that, that's what there. they did. No, they have like, they have like one movie star. And then a bunch of people that you do know, but the movie well, star is not DJ even. Cobb had had a story career. I mean, he had a he huge does. career. Yeah. He does have a huge career, but here he's playing a, a a bad guy, not not a bad guy, but an antagonist. Yeah, um, that is that does get his his moments, his lines, his monologues, but there's nothing in this movie that's so showy and so dramatic. Um, it's explosive. It's incredibly dramatic. Mm-hmm. But it's not individually specific. Um, mm-hmm. Everyone gets their moment to chime in and say something. Gotcha. Yeah, I see what you're saying. So if you're going to cast Denzel in a role, you can't just cast Denzel. You got to cast other people. You do. It has to be built from the ground up that way. Okay. Can I drop my two, um, juror number 10 and juror number three? Go for it. Because I, I haven't put them out there and they're pretty so, different. So number three is super logical and number 10 or, is... Sorry, two and 10. The, the racist and the, the angry dad. No, three is the angry dad. Four is the, the super logical guy, isn't he? Yes, right? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, so I, I have two picks. Guys. And I think they could go either way. And they're very different. Okay. But I think that they would do what you're saying well. It's Paul Giamatti and it's yeah. Bob Odenkirk. Yes! Bob, okay, Bob Odenkirk Ooh. as a racist or as an angry dad. Paul Giamatti as a racist or an angry dad, they both no, work. Bob They're incredible actors in a specific, you know, one-on-one situation. They're they're yes. in line driven. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that both of them pull this off so, so, with a plum. So Bob And they're not too they're not too they're they're both very famous and also not too famous. Bob right? Odenkirk, racist. That's what I want. I don't know. Yes. I, no, no. Oh, that Bob would be perfect. That would don't be perfect. Bob Odenkirk, though, being the guy who beats his son and then gets beaten up no. by his son? No. 
Nope. No. Oh, I, I don't know. No, I see I him know. as the racist okay, okay, so I'm fine clearly. With I'm fine with him And I see Paul Giamatti being the overweight, uh, middle-aged man whose life is passing by and who is disappointed, but still consoles himself every night saying, like, I made him a man. Yeah. I see that a lot more. I think those are two wonderful choices, and I don't think that they are um, reversible. Okay. I think they are reversible. I think that either of them has, has the chops to pull it off on, on either side. And I think them coupled with Denzel or with Mark, Mark Ruffalo, mm-hmm. it, it would be incredible. It, w- it would be so amazing to see that. What do you guys think? That's funny because uh, my pick for uh, the racist guy was um, Paul Giamatti. I just think like I mean? him saying like, look at these animals would be perfect. Yes. Yeah. Look at these animals and the way that he has is like, like he's, he's balding and he's kind of, he's kind of big around the middle and he's got, he's got the beard and everything. That's beautiful. Yeah. Man. What okay. a, what a yeah. legendary cast. Why, why is this being made right now? We're, we're doing death on the Nile and we're not doing 12 angry men. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So my, my second pick. So first off, I, I think, I think Paul Giamatti for the racist guy would, would be perfect. But if you wanted to make an entirely different movie, <laughs> Danny DeVito <laughs> would be a great racist guy. Oh, <laughs> no, I am not I'm interested sure in seeing that. What a bastardization. I, I'm pretty sure we've seen that movie. Yeah. Paul, <laughs> always said we've seen that. Always said That's the show. <laughs> <laughs> there's, uh, there's, like, there's like 300 hours of content on that, Jesse, if you want it. <laughs> <laughs> It's true. It's already there. So I thought it'd be really funny to have him. Uh, I did want to run one more by you guys, and then maybe we could uh, sort of drop the whole who who plays who thing or keep going with it, whatever you guys want. But for the old man, I was really – who's juror number nine, I was really struggling with this guy. Cause, because cause the guy I, that I want, the guy that I wanted for it, he's dead. This is, oh, this is yeah. the role that John Hurt is supposed to play. This is mm-hmm. John Hurt. And he is he is R.I.P. gone. Who fills the role, Jesse? Who are you thinking? Because John Hurt's not here. So I, I thought of one person, and when I thought of it, uh, I couldn't get out of my head, and that would be Meryl Streep. Oh! To totally change wow. it. I mean, oh. it's a gender swap, so that really no, changes no, no, it. But, like, but you're, you're saying, like, like, it, just in my mind, with my picks, like it's it's Denzel, it's Russell Crowe, it's Meryl Streep in the remake of Twelve Angry Men. I, I was so okay. I I got to read you guys this list because I looked up actors that are over seventy, and do you know what? Do you want to know what I found? I found on that list like Al Pacino, Harrison Ford, uh, Robert De Niro. Yeah, but just. Tons of people and Meryl Streep, she she's just she's just such a well versed actor that when I was thinking of of anybody who could play this type of person, Meryl Streep could pull it off. Um Yes. And the person and, who I mean, like, oh gosh, that rule is so poignant too. I mean, what he says when he when he is uh kind of revealing what happens with um with the old man who you know, he had the stroke and he says he knows that it's it's his son. He says he just wants like he's an old man. He's got no one who will listen to him. No one's listening mm-hmm. to him. No one's asking him for advice. And 
all he wants is for someone to ask him what he thinks. He wants to be quoted. They say, oh, how would you know that about him? And he doesn't even say like, because it's me. He just like looks. And it's just like, oh man, it's so powerful. It's yeah. this really poignant moment. And actually, yeah. and actually that That's leads me to, to maybe thinking that uh, I might even say somebody like someone without so much charisma. Yeah. I, like not, not in a bad way, but somebody like maybe Annette Benning might do that a little bit better. Um, someone that is is more used to to taking the quiet role to to underplaying yeah. something. Um, I mean, Meryl Streep is just such a dynamo. Yeah, and she I, anytime I see that she's in a movie, like I'm like, yeah, here's here's my money. I'd like to, I'd like to see it. But someone like Annette Bening or or uh, gosh, I, I put down Christopher Plummer. Um, oh, I don't know if he quite fits. I don't know if he's got the right voice. I don't know if he. I mean, he does still retain some of his charm, uh, despite the fact that he he looks he looks like a frail old man now. But I mean, but um, like look, watching him in Beginners, you know, he's so good in Beginners, and he's so he's so good at pulling off that that youthful um, energy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but he also, I, I think, I mean, he's an understated. He's always been an understated actor. Yeah, uh, I like the idea of the uh, the gender switch, uh, but I couldn't think of one. Um, so my pick for this, uh, there's a problem with accents and maybe a problem with too much star power too. Uh, but I was thinking Michael Caine, um, just like he could pull off the frailty and also the, uh, the emotion. Well, here for, uh, maybe for brevity's sake, cause I mean, we're already up in an hour and we haven't even discussed this movie's themes and topics. Um, let's start with Tony. Tony, you want to just read your list, start to finish, and then we'll go Tony, Jesse, Mike, and then me, because I did not do everybody. Does that sound good to everyone? Sure. Uh, so I didn't have uh, everyone. So I didn't have number one, the foreman. Uh, but for the the piglet character, I had uh, Michael Sarah seemed to be the obvious oh, choice. yes! And then um, <laughs> I was also thinking maybe Edward Norton or Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Uh, but those two don't fit Very as well. Strong. Very strong. Uh, for uh, Cobb, I had, um, I guess we already talked about that, Russell Crowe, Al Pacino, Ray Liotta. Uh, for oh, the super okay. logical guy, uh, E.G. Marshall, I had Kevin Spacey. It's kind of the obvious pick. And then I was also thinking maybe Anthony Hopkins. Or You should, um, probably, pick, you should probably pick Anthony Hopkins and not Kevin Spacey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but my other pick was uh, Giancarlo Esposito. Oh, dude, yeah, he's my number one. That's like good. he would just be so great at that cold calculating. Uh, oh, that's great! Yeah, and the glasses too. Yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't have anyone for uh, number five, Jack Klugman, or number six, Edward Bins. Um, for the baseball, uh, number seven, um, I was thinking Jack Black. He's the guy who's not really taking it seriously and is kind of a goofball. That's a good call. Yeah, I, I see that. Uh, then for Henry Fonda, I had yeah Mark Ruffalo or Jake Gyllenhaal. Right. Uh, for number nine, uh, Joseph Sweeney. Yeah, I had Michael Caine. Uh, maybe also Morgan Freeman, but I wasn't sure about that. Sure. Uh, for number 10, I had Paul Giamatti for the racist guy. Uh, for number 11, for the immigrant character, I had uh, Christoph Waltz, because I love his accent. It is very good. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, for number 12, for the ad man, uh, I think mean, John Hamm was kind of the obvious one, but then my other option was Vince Vaughn for like kind I of like that charismatic Vaughn, young yeah. guy. I like Vince Vaughn a hundred percent more, 
a hundred percent more. That's really good. Yeah, that's good. Sorry, uh, just honorable mentions. There's three other actors I wanted to fit in there, but I couldn't find a place for them. And they were uh, Steve Buscemi, John Malkovich, and Philip Seymour Hoffman. I mean, what are you doing? What are you doing if you don't have those three guys? Unfortunately, R.I.P. Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. All right, Jesse, what do you got? All right, so I got Martin Freeman as a foreman. Again, Michael Sarah as as juror number two because who else could play that guy? Maybe Tom Holland as a close second. Um, Willem Dafoe or Brian Cranston as juror number three. Uh, Giancarlo Esposito or Benedict Cumberbatch for the ultralogical juror. Beautiful. Uh, Winston Duke as juror number five. He could play off a good, like, the, the same character he played in Us because he could do a bunch of, like, dad jokes, kind of ease the tensions, but also take things very seriously. Uh, for number six, Andy Serkis, because he looks an awful lot like that actor in 12 Angry Men. Uh, for number seven, I have uh, Seth Rogen, and this is the guy who has the baseball cards, right? Um, so Seth Rogen, or as kind of a different take, Steve Buscemi, as kind of like the just leave me alone, I'm going to vote for whoever to say guilty or not guilty just so I can get out of here. Uh, number eight, I said Matt Damon. Number nine, Meryl Streep. Number ten, uh, John Good, John Goodman. Number eleven, Oscar Isaac. And number twelve, I've got Paul Rudd. Very good. That. I see that. Very nice. What do you got, Mike? All right, I'll rattle mine off. Um, juror number one, Donnie Wahlberg. I thought he'd be great. Uh, juror number two, I also had Michael Sarah or Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Um, I like Joseph Gordon-Levitt a lot. Yeah, I, I think I think he does it really well. He, he's got the glasses. He's kind of nerdy these days. Um, juror three is... Uh, I, I had Bob Odenkirk for juror number three, the angry dad. Juror four, I wasn't sure, but I thought Javier Bardem would do a really good job as juror number four. Um, Logical guy? Yeah, I yeah. think so. I mean, yeah, I I'm think thinking of him in uh, in No Country for Old Men, of course. Yeah. Uh, but he brings an intensity to... Juror number six, uh, Casey Affleck, and then I realized that I was kind of thinking that this was maybe... Um, in Boston rather than New York, but you know, whatever. Juror number seven, I put down Sam Rockwell. I thought oh. he could pull off the the kind of nihilistic how did, sales how did we guy. Not say Sam Rockwell at any point. Jeez. Well, we just did. Um, juror <laughs> juror <laughs> number eight, everyone. I George Clooney or Brad Pitt, but I'm I'm switching it to Denzel. Thank you. Juror number nine, Christopher Plummer. Juror ten, Paul Giamatti. Juror number 11, Mahershala Ali. Oh, Mahershala. Yeah. Ma- Mahershala. Yeah. And then juror number 12, actually, for the ad man, I had Mark Ruffalo. Very um, good. Yeah. And did I say juror five? The um, the juror number five, Donald Glover, I, I had there. I don't know if I said that. Very cool. I thought I thought that that was a good kind of mix. I, I'm going to have to say, uh, I, I, I like Mike's, I think Mike's picks fall in line most with mine. I, I like those. Um, I think they'd all be incredible films. Yeah, these, these would you all could be do like, really so, cool. You could do so many things. I mean, the thing is, I started thinking about like, oh man, but you know, okay, back in 1957, it was an all male like jury or an all female jury, right? Depending on it. But now you've got a totally different world, right? Yeah, you've got men and women. You've got so you've got so many things you could do with it. So many different combinations of actors and actresses that you could do. It's almost impossible to whittle down. Like who do you want your 12 angry people to be? Yeah. Um, yeah. But anyway, uh, I think that we've spent a good amount of time on this and maybe when we come back, 
we will discuss uh, kind of what's going on um, in the movie before we uh, we say goodbye. All right, so we're back from our break. Uh, and what we really want to dive in now, because we spent far too much time on our <laughs> fantasy draft castings. <laughs> it was so um, much fun, though. Yeah, I had so much fun doing that and coming up with that list. It was a lot of fun. I, I, I enjoyed myself a lot. I enjoyed seeing other people's picks and just seeing how we could revitalize this um, essential and kind of eternal piece of American drama uh, for our times now. Um, I wish we could actually talk about that more for even another hour, but we'll just do that on our own time. We won't bore you. Digging into the movie a little bit more, actually going beneath the surface. So this is actually, I think, a very prescient movie for our times. Um, While it is a little bit restricted by its time period when it comes out, it's a very incisive piece of drama about uh, class, um, about race, about economic inequality. Um, I think that still has a lot to say today. In fact, uh, a lot of times the only thing I would fault this movie for is that it pulls its punches. What we need is this kind of hard-hitting drama where it pitches two, uh, 12 strangers against each other arguing about the fate of another person. Because this is really like, this is this is what a lot of our American judicial system is founded on. This is the, the, the sacred, almost um, God-given American right to have a right to a trial by your peers and then have those peers really fight over you and decide, did you do it? Did you not? What sort of punishment? Yeah. And, and now, especially that sort of jury system is so such a bizarre idea, I guess, especially in the age of, you know, post uh, uh, black lives matter um, post all the statues mm-hmm. that we see toppling down post George Floyd post Breonna Taylor. Um, it's really difficult almost to try and find a way into this movie because of how fraught our conversation has become about class and race. Um, So this movie does depict uh, several members of the jury as being of working class and several members being uh, of, of a certain ethnicity. It's not really clear what kind it seems generally Italian, um, which at the time uh, was a minority group that was very largely discriminated against but now sort of thinking about it in these different sort of terms, we would imagine that person on trial being a person of color, um, somebody uh, Latino or somebody um, black. And the jurors of his peers, the jury of his peers would be made up of, you know, a mix of people, a, a very diverse mix if the defense is doing its job. And it, it's kind of difficult to even know where to be. Again, when talking about it, I guess the best way to, to start is to say juror number eight, the the good juror, quote unquote, the the speaking man for the people, the, the idealistic person that we want to be. If we're assuming that this is a defendant of color, this this person that's accused of murder, do you think that he is going to be judged by a jury of his peers, of people of similar color as himself? I think that, I mean, I, I think juries today would probably include people of color. I think that they'd be, I mean, I think that's one of the cool things that the movie brings out is that we were getting a cross section of America, or at least of, of New York there. I mean, we've got, we've got someone who basically comes from, from the defendant's neighborhood, right? And he, he knows this kid, he's seen 
basically this kid, not necessarily this exact kid, but he says, you know, he's seen knife fit fights on his, on his stoop. You he, know? he grew up, he grew up with trash in the yard. Yeah. And I think the idea is that he still lives there. Um, he says so. Yeah. We've got an actual immigrant. I think, you know, what we have today is probably uh, someone of, of Muslim descent or something taking that role. Uh, you know, we've got, we've got a wall street trader. We've got a uh, sales, a sales guy. I mean, we've got, it's almost like jury duty is the great equalizer in America in, in some ways, in some funny, odd ways, which I think is what is so powerful about this movie is because you take all these people who normally would never interact with one another and put them, uh, you put them in a room. You make and them you talk. Say, you guys all have to agree. You don't just have to talk. You have to come to an agreement. And if you don't, you failed. You failed your fellow citizen and yourself because that could be you someday. And and no, none of them want to do that. They keep saying, you know, oh, let's let's be a hung jury. And most of them don't want to do that ever. E- even the people who are who are going for it, they don't really want it to be a hung jury. So I mean, I think yes, you're gonna have people of color in it if it's if it's a story that's playing out today. I think you're gonna I mean you're definitely gonna have women in it. Um and it, it's gonna be a, a definitely interesting cross-section the lawyers on both sides are going to be working to make sure that uh they're 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 both going to be trying to stack the jury for their defendants either you know to to for the the defendant's acquittal or you know for for um his prosecution yeah but i think because of that because they both come coming at it with uh the opposite agenda that actually helps to ensure that you get more of a real cross-section. I don't know. Do you disagree with that? Do you, do you think that's not the case? No, no, I, I, I agree fully. Um, and, and I kind of wanted to ask Tony here, you know, Tony, you're, you're in the, you're in the Bay area. Um, you know, you're seeing a lot of different kind of a lot of different culture than what we're seeing, you know, me and Mike down here in Southern California or Jesse out in, in, in Arizona. Um, it's just a much different culture there. Um, how do you, how do you see this? What's your view on this playing out in your area now? Yeah, I mean, San Francisco is a real melting pot. Um, I mean, obviously, you have less of a African American population just because we're up in the you know Northwest. Um, but yeah, so there's a, there's a the heavy Asian population, Filipino, uh, Hispanic. Do you see this sort of story uh, being different, given that as you say, like sort of melting pot kind of situation? Do you see this? Um, playing out in a different way uh, is is there? Do, do you sense a I don't know different relationships between different minorities um, than what this movie seems to be portraying? I mean, this is like it's portraying it in New York, right? The story is set in New York, and you have what seems to be a, a, a German man who is the very skeptical, logical one. It seems that you have a very working class, maybe Irish man um, who's the real pusher, who's the dad, you know, of the of the boy when he breaks down. Um, you're seeing, uh, maybe like a Russian Polish immigrant person. You're seeing, um, sort of generic white guys elsewhere around. Um, I imagine that demographic would have to be a little bit different. Who do you think would be on this in terms of racial minorities or, or do you think it would be different? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, uh, but I guess one of the things that I found interesting about the movie is that, I mean, there's kind of the in your face racism, uh, particularly of, um, Ed Begley and, um, a few other characters to a certain extent. But what I thought was interesting too, was that um, there's a lot of other biases that seem to be at play that aren't based on race. 
Um, so there was a number of characters who um, had the assumption that the that the the defendant or the the, the public defender um, was uh, kind of justified. So so when there was gaps in the argument or um, certain evidence that wasn't um, maybe wasn't uh, cross examined to the extent that uh, Henry Fonda wanted it to be, um, their response would be that. Well, there's a, it seemed like basically what I'm trying to say is that it seemed like there was a, a kind of a, a trust in the legal system that's maybe unfounded. Yeah. Um, so it seems like, and then there was other, it seems like there was a lot of biases about uh, both the poverty of the defendant and the age of the defendant. Um, so I guess I would argue that a lot of the biases in the movies uh, might carry through, um, even if you take race out of it. That's interesting. That, uh, yeah, there is a lot of biases. They, they always refer to him as a kid. You know, they're constantly talking about him as a kid. They're constantly talking about him as like this violent blah, blah. Um, and they're, they're always referring to his economic status as well. Um, mm-hmm. Jesse, do you, do you have any thoughts about that? I think juror number, uh, I think he's number nine. He's the old man, right? He His whole character is based off there being more ageism rather than uh, than racism in the room um in fact i think juror number three the angry juror makes a a couple points a few times uh saying something like you know back in my day i called my father sir who calls your father sir nowadays and then he's it's super ironic that he's the guy that starts insulting the old man later in the movie um yeah yeah Yeah. so i yeah, with that sort of ageism, though, I'm not sure if I would find that on a modern jury as m- nearly as much. Like, I if there was an old man, I I think everybody would just be just as inclined to listen to him because, like, I, I think I was saying this earlier, like, older people just aren't they they don't walk around with a limp. They're not like they're not. Uh, th- you can hear their voices better. They carry better. Uh, they're healthier it, to some degree. I don't know what it is. So, uh, like, I, I don't think that aspect of the jury would be there nowadays. Um, but it, it's so. Uh, but when talking about like modern juries, uh, I was talking about this with my dad a while ago, and my dad many years ago. Uh, well, not many. I I mean like eight. Um, he was <laughs> on a jury. Uh, it, it was he was on jury for like a, a police brutality case. Um, it wasn't criminal. Uh, I think it, it was more civil. Um, so doesn't I, sound I, very civil to me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, at the end of his case, um, you know, it, it was unclear whether the, whether or not it was, you know, police brutality or not. Uh, a majority of the jurors, meaning eight, I think, I think there were yeah there were twelve jurors. So eight of them said they were guilty of it. Four of them said they weren't, and it was a hung jury. So I would worry about that more than anything in a modern jury setting, uh, which would be like people are so divisive now that there would be no conclusion at the end. That's my that would be the main worry that I would I would have when going into a situation like this personally. That's a really good insight. I think that uh, regardless of sort of minorities and what you're talking about, I think that you would actually worry about whether or not people could ever come to an agreement with each other. Um, I mean, if Facebook or Instagram is anything to to measure society on, uh, 
I, I don't think that you have a 12 angry men situation where you have 12 people and yeah, the people in the movie are not necessarily open to being convinced, but they're not, not open to it. They're just, they're just people like I have my opinions and mm-hmm. you present them with a question. You say like, well, what do you think about this? And they go, oh, okay, I guess you can entertain that. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I don't really see that kind of honest discourse. I'm not, yearning for a time I was not born in, but I honestly don't think that the same kind of people are really around today. I think that people, I mean, this might be generalizing, but I think people generally make up their minds and they stick to those guns, uh, regardless of what they're shown. Dang, man, that's cynical. I, I hope that's not the case. I mean, I hate Facebook. I, I, I absolutely hate it because I think that it is a breeding ground of just like, you go on there and someone disagrees with you and you immediately feel assaulted um, because they're just asking like, Hey, why do you think that? Or something like that. Um, And it becomes this hate fest. But when you get people in a room, I think that there's a lot more, well, it's a lot more difficult to insult someone that's in front of you. Um, Is it though? Now? I mean, we're seeing like every, every day we're seeing videos about people People that are just screaming the worst things you can imagine at each other. Yeah. In the streets. But I think, I, I guess, well, okay. I, I, that's totally true. I mean, gosh, you see vid- videos all over the place. But I think that part of the Thank the you for beauty, not saying vetoes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you see these vetoes all over the place. Um, no, but I, I think I think that what's what, what's beautiful, and, and I say, you know, it's the great equalizer is is the is the decision chamber that they go into. These 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 12 people have to sit in front of each other and they have to talk to each other on this very individual basis. I think that the the videos that you see of people yelling and screaming at each other, they've disassociated the humanity of the people in front of them completely from the person who's in front of them. They're just sure they are the enemy in a very un unperson way. Yeah. And, and that's that's why they're able to do what what they're doing. And, and you know, maybe rightly, maybe wrongly, situations are, are very different in very many different situations. Um, but when you get a bunch of people in a room like that, and when you've got something like, hey, this guy's life hangs on the balance, I want to believe that people are, are still going to come together and, and say, like, finally, you know, they'll, they'll listen, they'll have the the conversations. Um, okay. or at least there'll be an, a, at least one person in the room who's going to say, Hey, we need to ask, do we actually have enough here to say this guy did it? And because of that, he's going to get the electric chair. He's going to die. Okay. A couple, a couple things about that. Uh, so when I brought up like my, my dad's jury or whatever, my dad was actually one of the guys who, who changed the position to join the eight. And I think there were a few on the jury that actually managed to do that who realized that, that the cops were probably guilty and they, they switched the side. So I know that it is still possible for that to happen. Like that's, I, I wouldn't say that's impossible. Uh, but I'd also like to point out in this particular movie, right? It's uh, I think juror number seven and juror number 12 are the best examples we have in this movie of people who s- vote not because they care about the kid's life, not because they care about anything other than themselves at that moment, because juror number seven, he just wants to get out as soon as possible. As soon as he is able to join the majority, he joins it. And then juror number 12, he's just, he's kind of a stupid idiot who just sits there 
and then like flip flops and does like he says, yeah, whatever is the most flashiest argument that comes my way, I'll buy it, you know. Um, so like even in Twelve Angry Men, the scenario is not like whether or not all men can come together and decide like virtuously whether or not this uh, the defendant is guilty or not guilty. It's uh, because they sincerely believe it. It's can a, any group, any given group of any 12 people ever come together and ever decide this? And in this thought experiment, the answer is it, it can happen. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I don't yeah. think you're giving number 12 enough credit. I, I think, I mean, he's definitely, you know, a, a <laughs> spot, but, but I mean, I, I think at the end, like he's, he is actually trying to make a decision. He recognizes that something pretty big is, is on the line here, even though he's, joking around the whole time and playing these games. He that's, that's his character. He's a, he, he thinks it, he's a jokester. He's in an infantile way. Yeah. You know, like he, he's obviously the least intellectually mature of everyone around him. Yeah. Um, it, it, in a way that's even funny. Like he even says like, you know, I have these little phrases and I say them and you know, let's, let's run this up the pole and see who salutes it. Um, and it doesn't get any laughs, but later on when he actually uses one, he's like, let's put this out in the stoop and see if the cat eats it everyone laughs and he seems like kind of surprised that everyone's laughing at it. Um, it, It's clear that he's kind of the baby of the group. He he's being led along by the strongest kind of personality. Um, And it's, it's true only when the majority happens that he, he does back it. Uh, Well, no, he, he flip flops on, on, on his decision twice. twice. Um, He, he goes back to, he, he goes to not guilty when he's presented with a bunch of evidence and he says, finally, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm going not guilty. And then, and then he changes back because they talk about how there's this incontrovertible evidence um, from the woman across the way, but then they realize that she doesn't have, like she wore glasses and she wouldn't have been wearing her glasses. And so they say, well, it's not, you know, there's a shadow of a doubt uh, of a doubt here. And I mean, that's, I, I think that he grows up kind of in that because he sort of realizes through the, through the, through the people who actually care about what happens here, he realizes like, Hey, this is really important actually. And he realizes that his vote matters and that he, his caring about this matters. And that, that's his character development is going from being like I, this nobody who doesn't care about anything to being someone who does rather than turning into the salesman who finally doesn't care about anything. He's a total nihilist. Uh, that's my take. What do you okay. think, Jesse? I think that's very charitable take for that guy. So <laughs> I what, I took, <laughs> what I took away from juror number 12, <laughs> what I think of juror number 12, he says he's the advertiser, right? So his job is to make things as interesting as possible for people to listen to or see. Uh, so what he's, what he, and what all the jurors saw in the courtroom was clearly very interesting and very engaging and convinced them all of one thing. And that is that defendant is guilty. And so he doesn't come around till near the end because he is going for the most interesting flashy argument that comes. So he goes for the more interesting. He's not guilty because Frankly, at this point, that's now an entertaining movie, right? That is something so engaging that we would all watch it. So, of course, the advertiser would start to pay attention to it. That's how I took his his initial not guilty. And then with him saying guilty again is because he gets a very flashy, like, super emotion-packed argument from the angry father 
who who gives that to him, and then he instantly switches again. Like I, I don't think he cares. Oh, I was just gonna say, um, I, I I don't think it's true that he doesn't care. I think it's just, I think one of the interesting things about Journal Number Eight, Henry Fonda, is that um, he has the rare ability to stand up to everyone else, uh, stand up against popular opinion, and I, I think there's a couple characters in the room who do that, um, like Lee Cobb. Um, but generally, to a greater or lesser extent, you know, people are sheep, right? So that's neither good or bad. It's just that a lot of people will follow the herd. So I don't think it's the case that either that he doesn't care. I think it's just the case that that he's he's convinced. You know, I think it's, you know, like it, no one's ever convinced on Facebook in part because I think um, there's just much less uh, force behind an argument that's written than, than one that's in person. Um, and, you know, a powerful argument can, can convince people in person much more effectively. Sure. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I guess... I guess looking at it, it I think it's uncharitable and, and maybe un, un I was about to say uncorrect. <laughs> That's uncorrect. It's uncorrect. It's uncorrect. <laughs> you're so correct that you're in it. It's incorrect. That's right. That, so from here on out, when we're really right, we're incorrect. Um, I think it's uncorrect to read any of these people as as anything but sincere. Um, they are sincerely who they believe themselves to be. Not that they can't be insincere themselves, but they, they don't have uh, questions of identity with the exception of um, uh, juror number three, um, Lee, Lee Cobb's character. That's the only person who seems to be truly in denial about himself. Um, everyone else seems actually like fairly comfortable with who they are. Um, they're adults. They know when they're being mistreated. I mean, uh, juror, uh, the foreman and juror number two specifically speak up for themselves all the time. Everyone speaks up for juror number nine, the old man. You know, they, they, it's it's a group of guys. And just like just like uh, uh, Henry Fonda says when they're in the bathroom, you know, oh, it's a group of guys, just like any group. You know, yeah. it, it's a very familiar group to him. They're very self-possessed people that are, uh, they're, they're workers, you know, they're middle-aged men uh, making their way in the 1950s. And, Lee Cobb is the only one that is under any sort of, I think, delusion. Everyone else can admit when they're wrong. Even even the racist juror, the worst thing about him is that he's racist. The best thing about him is that he listened to people. Because remember when he goes on his awful tirade and everyone in the room turns away from him. Um, it's amazing. People are just getting up from the table to get away from him. He's so repellent. They go to the edge of the room. They like plaster themselves against the walls. The only one that's left is, is juror number four. Four, the super logical one, right? Yeah. And the salesman. And the salesman. He's and turned away, but he's still at the table. He's turned away. He's disgusted. He's embarrassed. And the rational no, juror, he though. he just doesn't care. The rational juror, though, is looking right at the racist. Looking right at him and says, you are entitled to your opinion. Do not open your mouth again. Go and sit down. And, and he, he does for the rest. He never does. He never says another room. word. Except for yeah. not guilty. Yeah, not guilty. That's it. That's Puts it. He sits by table, himself. Like the corner table. That, no, no. Why is it there? His, his chair is oh, it, it's turned away from the other. He, from he's the got table. the dunce cap. <laughs> yeah. He's it, in time it's out. crazy. Like, it's, yeah. Um, I like Very that a lot. Cool. And I, I think that that, that that prepossession is really good. And so, yeah, talking about, you know, maybe the, maybe the closest audience surrogate might be juror number 12. You know, if you're in this room with these this group of guys, maybe most people would be that guy. What do you think? Is that is that our sort of end to the world? 
I don't well, know. I was I, thinking about that. Who, who, who did I relate to most? I, I don't know. Do you guys have thoughts on that? Let me, who, who do you feel like you are in 12 angry men? You can't say juror number eight. <laughs> and, well, and that's the thing. You is can't that... say jury number 10. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it, it, I guess it depends exactly what you mean by that question. Cause I mean, obviously um, you, you put yourself in the place of protagonist, right? But that doesn't mean that that's the person you identify with. Um, so I, I guess, um, I mean, 12 makes a lot of sense in terms of, I think you are throughout the, at least I was throughout the movie going back and forth between whether I thought he was guilty. But I guess uh, one of the other characters I really liked, I don't know if I identified with him, but I really liked was the, uh, the immigrant. Um, yeah. He's just so, so cool. many amazing, powerful speeches. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what were you thinking, Jesse? Yeah. I, I think, I think you're number 12, especially just thinking about like your average person on the street I think he represents the worry I have for most jurors out there, which is like, you are just, you are just going to be bored. You are just going to be bored with everything. And whatever the flashiest thing coming your way is, is the thing you're going to latch on to. Um, so yeah, I did, I did relate to him that way. Cause like, I, I know I have that within me too. Like I know one of the only reasons why I'm watching 12 angry men is because it is a fantastically made, movie it has a fantastic pace and it moves so well um but i I also yeah and i also love reddit and if if juror number 12 (laughs) 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 12, campaigns on reddit (laughs) yeah he would he juror number 12 is like the quintessential reddit user Right, like he's just a guy who keeps swiping and and keeps upvoting things and then just keeps going, um, and, and so yeah, I, I do I do relate a lot to juror number twelve, but uh, uh, in terms of like who I I would see myself the most as, like I I hope it wouldn't be juror number seven, but it might be juror number seven. <laughs> wow. Like, Good like, brave, take, brave take. Okay, that's that's like the guy I'm most worried about. No, no, yes. I, I, I honestly like thinking about it in terms yeah. of real life. I am pulled out of my life. I have to tell my work. I have jury summons. I'm going to take a significant pay cut. It's like you've got a, a solid week or more. Yeah, on a murder trial. Yeah, yeah. Or, or or just or even worse. Think about a like um, it. It, it's like a sonic jury, dude, and it's like a month long thing. I mean, I mean, you you'd be lucky if it was an interesting murder, you know. Yeah. At least then you'd have something to occupy your mind. Maybe it's a really boring case. Maybe it's a civil trial. I mean, who knows? I don't know how these things work because yeah. I've never had one. Yeah. But um, you know, you're getting paid like what is it like eight dollars an hour to do this? Uh, you're you're losing yeah. money. It's a civil service, yes, and every citizen should do his civil duty. But it sucks to your bottom line. Yeah. You don't want to be there. You want this to be over as quickly as possible. Uh, so you can go sell marmalade. Yes, you can go sell. I mean, he, he, made, look, look, he made a lot of 22 money. Grand. Okay. 1957? Holy cow. Selling marmalade. It's like, I don't know how I did it. I just did it. I love it's that It's pretty line. amazing. So yeah, yeah, I love I that line. That's, that's a good insight. Uh, honestly, um, I, I'm probably with either the working class juror uh, just cause that's, that's sort of my job. Um, I, I would hope that I would put my civil duty first, but honestly I might be baseball card juror. Cause I, I might just be like, yeah, whatever moves us along. I don't whatever care. Whatever gets me to the game. I would like, I, or like, I would like to go back to work so that my paycheck is normal so I can pay my rent on time. That would be good. 
Thank you. Um, and it sounds. Well, I just really want to add that, uh, given that Henry Fonda's character is an architect, I might have a slightly better. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you are the architect. That's yeah, yeah. Tony, Tony, Tony is the classical architect. <laughs> Tony the architect. That's what we call him. Don't, don't at him, bro. Don't do it. <laughs> um, boy, uh, what what other things can we talk about with this? Uh, it it is it is really thematically deep. Um, I want to ask another question. One last question from me. Do you think that the the integration and and use of the voice of women, um, not even the voice of minorities here, we talked about that, but specifically the voice of women, how do you think that this changes this movie? Do, do you have any thoughts, Lenny? Yeah, I was thinking about that. Um, just because I was, I was when we were um, compiling our lists for who we would cast, um, I, I, was, I was looking for female actors. Um, and I had trouble because I think there's so much male energy in the movie. Um, there's so much confrontation. Um, I had trouble, trouble replacing that. And I wonder what that would do to the tone of the movie. Um, just yeah. to, yeah, to, to flip things. A I mean, bit. It, so it, I, it is, I too, is hard. I want to bring it up because it's like that, that room, that room smells like, like, like groins, like <laughs> it, it, it comes off the screen that way. Oh, dude, that room is so disgusting. They're all, they had so much sweat all over There's their so much body. chest sweat. <laughs> like, I, love, I love how we're like almost that. done with the movie and they finally figure out like, hey, the way to get the fan on is by flipping the switch. Like turning on the lights and you could have air. Like, wake up, people. <laughs> Well, I, I love that scene, too, because it's so symbolic of the entire case, right? Like, all you guys had to do was do this one simple thing that you just never thought of. But everybody just said, oh, the fan is broken. Everybody went along with it. So, yeah, that, that scene is great for that reason, too. Um, but um, in terms of, like, what it would be like to have an actress in there, like, I, I had trouble envisioning a young, super attractive actress in there because I, I would think what would start happening is a lot of guys would start fighting for like no reason whatsoever. That's fair. <laughs> I think it's fair. So, but what, what I was more, what I was more asking about is, is maybe like not imagining uh, like a, a, a young up and comer um, to disrupt the age balance. Cause all these guys are, are definitely over 35. Um, but just 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 a, a middle aged woman, just like these are middle aged men. Um, how does that that mature energy? And I don't mean mature in a in a disparaging way, but I really mean like you are a grown up. Um, you know, just just like if it's if it's just someone from your office, someone from your workplace, and it just so happens that they are now here with you in the jury room. Like how does how does the female dynamic change it? Um, and not necessarily like we got a young hottie here because guess what? That movie's been made too, but just, just a, just another person that happens to be a woman. I don't think you have the same kind of, uh, aggressive sort of male. Do you think it becomes less battle? aggressive or even more aggressive? It becomes differently aggressive. Maybe. Um, I mean, you're going to have the interplay of like, it, like it, it's going to bring up a whole new host of, of things. It's not just going to be like father son dynamics and that sort of thing, but you're also going to have like, Hey, you know, that you've got a guy there with a bad marriage and, or she had a bad relationship with her son. Like 
it changes the dynamics a lot. It brings in a whole new, a whole slew of new stories because all, all these stories, all these people, what kind of comes out throughout the story is their relationships to one another um, or, or their relationships to the people in their lives. Uh, you know, especially, you know, Lee J. Cobb, he, he has the son and that's like the, the crux point of the whole movie is like his anger and rage at his child yeah. um, and his child leaving him and beat after beating him up. Um, so that's, you know, that's this huge story to, that comes out. But then what you're going to have, if you bring in, in, in a woman is you're going to have those dynamics as well. You're going to have mother, son dynamics. You're going to have husband, wife dynamics. You're going to have father, daughter, mother, son, uh, all, everything. Yeah, I mean, actually, now looking at the list of twelve jurors, I, I honestly think any one of them can be a woman, and not much would change. Um, like any, I could see anybody being the foreman, right? Like trying to lead things and then struggling and kind of failing. Like any woman can do that. Any woman can be like the piglet kid, like earnestly trying to figure out how how to be a good juror. And honestly, like, like the most the most spineless Hollywood remake would definitely recast Holly juror number two as a woman because it's the easiest one to do. Like no dynamics change, it's, right? It's very easy, right? I I think, yeah. And honestly, you could get you could get um somebody with a lot of acting chops to do that number juror number three again meryl streep is juror number four I, you could get you could get a woman to play juror number five and then change like the 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 poor minority dynamic michelle being, rodriguez michelle yeah. rodriguez yeah 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 that could be it uh, i think that whole rant that juror number three goes against uh, uh, with juror number five, could that could still happen? That'd be great. Uh, juror number six could be like a you know a single mom just trying to make it. Uh, juror number seven, just like you know, get me out of here. I want to go home. Juror number eight, anybody. I think a woman could actually be anybody, and it would still basically be the same story. Personally, I mean, it would definitely change some things. Like I'm thinking about juror number six, Edward Benz. Uh, so one of the things that defined that character for me was that um, he was aggressively defending the old man. So he kept yeah. threatening to beat up Lee Hobb if he kept talking to the old man that way. And that doesn't seem like that would be the case with a female replacement. Uh, unless, um, unless, I guess both, for me, unless both she and, and the old juror are women, right? Mm, true. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I mean, it doesn't even have to be that way either. Like, I, I could imagine yeah. they get get uh, I don't know what's um who's the woman in uh, in Baby Driver that plays John Hamm's girlfriend? Um, she'd be perfect. Uh, I'll find her name. I'll find her name in a minute. But sorry, continue with your point. Oh, I was just going to say that uh, I guess for me it seemed like there was two dynamics that I saw where it seems like there's quote unquote female energy, or you could replace uh, the character with a female without drastically changing the dynamics. One was. Um, the all the the relationships around uh, juror number nine Joseph Sweeney, um, where you know one of the more boisterous characters would attack him, uh, like Cobb, and then a bunch of people would jump to his aid. And it seems like you would have that dynamic if there was, say, an elderly woman uh, yeah. being attacked. Um, just just that idea of like a um, a disadvantaged class being attacked, and then people jumping to their aid because they see that obvious injustice. Yeah. Uh, no. And I, then I guess the other. Sorry. No. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. 
Okay. And then I guess we've already alluded to this, but um, it seems like you could definitely take like, like a Meryl Streep character to replace Joy number four, where you have that idea of like a, like a character that's coldly rebuking someone for, for racism or something like that. And also, also you could get any, a lot of people to play juror number 10 and just say, she's a type of Karen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's, that's true. Yeah. That's possible. I, I could, uh, I could imagine any number of actresses that might almost like want to do that. Cause it'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. Like, could you imagine if yeah. Reese Spoon wanted to do something oh like that? Oh my gosh. That'd be <laughs> Yeah. Would be so uh, I'd be cool. down. I'd want to see that movie. Pocket. Um. Anyway, the 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 actress I was thinking of is uh, her name is um uh, Isa Gonzalez. Um. I just wanted to uh to say that before we moved on. Um. Okay. I I'm I'm out of, about out of questions for this, so I I do have to say you know we are really only scratching the surface of this. Um. It's a podcast where we, where we try to have fun, but it's also we try and dig deep into the issues. But sometimes movies like this, the the issues are are limitless uh they talk about our society now and honestly if we wanted to do a podcast about our society now we wouldn't do it about movies yeah um and we also wouldn't be uh who we are (laughs) can i I also say though that as a movie like just watching the camera work for this particular movie was it was amazing like i can't believe that this entire movie besides like i think five minutes because there's a couple minutes in the bathroom and then three minutes split between the beginning and end that doesn't take place inside one room. Yep. That's it. It's yep. just one room with the actors actively moving around, camera following them, the way it changes from like close up on the face, zoom out, the actor walks around, uh, other other actors come into the conversation, they leave. The one actor, and then it's a camera over the guy's shoulder, and all one scene. Well, in the God's eye, the God's eye view, yeah, top. Well, and and Mm -hmm. it also it it also kind of moves because it starts off very much God's eye view, and it it, you get you get that God's eye view throughout a little bit, but it starts off very much that way. Then it moves down while they're discussing and they're becoming more intimate with one another, and you're getting to know them, and you're fitting into every single person's shoes. Yeah, um, where you're kind of on an equal level to them. And then at the end, you're below them, especially below Henry Fonda. Yeah. It's like you're looking up to him He's very a hero. much. Yeah, Ooh, and, yeah. And, when they go, and, and when they go out and you get Davis and, and what's what's the old McCardle. man's name? McCardle. McCardle. You're looking up at them. And I, I think that that was really interesting. Like this clearly is uh, representative of, of how we've sort of gone on this journey uh, with them. And, and we see and we see Lee Cobb right at the end when he when he rips apart his son's picture and and he collapses just in this like pile of limbs and sweat and broken dreams and is crying and just says not guilty, like almost immediately when he says some of the worst things about the kid and he's, you know, you you do your best for him. They rip your heart out and then he tears the the picture apart and almost instantly says not guilty. Like there's almost instant regret. He rips it and rips it. And then it goes, Oh, that was a mistake. I made a mistake (laughs) the whole time. Not guilty. That's almost him being like my. It, it's him realizing what he's the guilty one. Yeah, he's the one who's at fault for for his yeah. son's actions. Yeah, and it's like he he's not just saying that the kid's not guilty and his son's not guilty. He's saying I'm the guilty one. But then how amazing is it? They all leave. The only two left are Henry Fonda and and McCarthy. and, and no Luke Cobb. Oh um, yeah, Luke Cobb. Yeah, and he, yeah, and he picks and, up and the jacket. He picks up his jacket and puts three. it on him. And does not yeah, look. Yeah. Does not look at him though. 
He, yeah. he keeps his eyes down. He gives yeah. the man his dignity. He gives him so much dignity. Like what? That that just came out of nowhere. I, I had forgotten that scene um, and that he gives him his jacket. This, this is really, really powerful. It's almost like, um, yeah, it's almost like in Brothers K where when the old, when, in Brothers Karamazov, when the old, uh, when the old monk bows to um, old Karamazov, the dad, mm-hmm. and he, he's like, I bow to your suffering. And it's like, man, this is, this is a really, I don't know. It was amazing. It was it's so a really beautiful. Scene. So yeah. cool. Really well yeah. said. Yeah. Just, just to like, you know, uh, share its praises. It's, it's an amazingly made Every every scene is so intentional. Every close up of the face, every downward angle, it's a ama- it's it's a masterpiece of filmmaking. Yeah, I think that's safe oh, to yeah. say at this point because this has not only a masterpiece of filmmaking but masterpiece of writing. Because the fact that I could I know people like all twelve of these jurors in my life right now when they apparently existed like sixty plus years ago is an amazing accomplishment. That's that's not just a classic you've written. You've written a timeless classic, a classic where anybody of any age can take a look at this and say, I know these people, these people exist, and I can be in a room with them and come to this resolve. Oh, yeah. Do you have any uh, any closing thoughts about this? Anything else you want to say about this, Tony? Um, I mean, I'm just echoing everything you guys said. Um one thing that was really cool too is is the absence of a score in the movie that um, ah, the, yeah. the director was able to and the filmmaker was able to capture that uh, the emotion without you know the you know the crutch of of a score and the only music was right at the end that kind of you know triumphal music. Yeah, no, that that's a really cool note. Yeah, yeah. I, the the drama speaks for itself. The the music was the words. Yeah, yeah. I mean, hats off to you, Reginald Rose. What it's incredible. Wow. Um, I just want to say, okay, yeah. how oh. cool is this scene with the switchblade when um when when, <laughs> when Luke Cobb uh Lee. Lee Cobb, when Lee Cobb, I'm sorry, I keep going back and forth. Uh when he when he's demonstrating how someone would stab another man who's taller than them in the chest. I mean, oh my gosh, there's so much symbolism. <clears throat> like he's gonna stab the taller man because he doesn't like him because he's been beating him up uh intellectually and morally and in all sorts of ways and he almost goes for it yep oh my gosh but then, just but then, so then you cool. feel like an idiot for thinking that he would and he like treats everyone like yeah like you're such an idiot. okay i yeah. <laughs> you know 11 year old mike seeing this movie like i thought when when henry fonda pulls out the switchblade i'm like oh my gosh he's the actual murderer i kept waiting <laughs> i kept waiting for the moment like, oh no oh no Cobb's the murderer he's he's the guy who actually killed someone and then, like ingrained in my mind, is the moment when uh, when the Italian guy who, who grew up in the slums comes up and, and he doesn't he doesn't want to talk about his past because he's with all these guys who are clearly you know there's there's this quite well uh, to do well there's well to do guys there's people who aren't but they're definitely you know judging each other based mm-hmm. upon their their where they come from their wealth all of this stuff and he doesn't want to reveal you know he's from the slums and it, it's coming out and stuff and he finally comes up and he says listen. I know how these guys fight. I know what it's like. He's basically, you know, saying I am this kid and yeah. he, he shows them how, how kids fight with switchblades, mm-hmm. uh, switch knives is what they're calling it then. And that was just, I, it was so cool. And, and it's something that I think about regularly. <laughs> it, it's, it's like, I think about, Oh, it's a switchblade. The way you do that is you think is about this. the upward stab. Yeah. It's an upward stab. 
like, man, I, it, it's kind of like a uh, sinking sand. It's something that I think I'm going to need later on in my life. <laughs> I don't think I ever will, but it's always going to be there. Just kind of Quick bouncing sand. around Quick in sand. the back, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. I think those are great points, but I, I do have one, one big question to ask you guys before we end this. Um, and that is, do you think the kid killed his father? Is he guilty? Is he not guilty? I preface this podcast by saying he is not guilty. And I'm going to say it again. There is a reasonable doubt. Yeah, not guilty. Yeah, not guilty. Yeah, but I guess that's one of the, the coolest things about the movie to me is that um, it seems like from the when they, when the movie begins and they decide to go around the room and each person gives an accounting of why they're voting the way they're voting. One of the early jurors says that um, I just think he's guilty. I think it's juror number two. He says, I just think he's guilty. Um, and it just seems like that's that's kind of the way we generally think. We generally think, especially in this kind of thing, where it's either guilty or not guilty, we kind of think in a binary way where it's almost like, you know, 51% one way, that's the way I'm going. And it seems like part of what Henry Fond is convincing the jury of throughout the jury is is not which one you think is more likely it's 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 tilted to one side where you have to provide you know the burden of proof is on the the prosecution yeah um so i think you know given that framework yeah i mean it seems like the the verdict of not guilty is is totally justifiable i mean when i was watching this as a kid like i actually thought maybe the defendant didn't do it period and then i i realized now watching it as an adult that's not what Henry Fonda is trying to prove. He's not trying to prove that the kid didn't do it because if you actually, if you actually look at all the information that's laid out to you, the odds are in favor of this kid killing his father. I think. Yeah. I I would say there's a good 60% chance that that happened. There's a good 40% chance that did not happen, which is what I would deem a reasonable doubt, which is, all they prove in the movie. So I would also vote not guilty based off of what I saw in the movie. But that doesn't mean I, you have to say that the the kid didn't end up actually doing it. The thing is, you just never know. There's a reasonable doubt. I guess there's reasonable doubt. I guess the other thing I was wondering though is, um, and maybe it's, maybe it's not that important again to realism, but it seems like, um, it seems like what they're doing in this movie is not what a jury is supposed to do. Because my understanding is that what a jury is supposed to do is that is take the evidence that's presented in court and then using that evidence, come to a decision on, you know, what's the truth. And it seems like what actually happens is they relitigate the case in the jury room where, they you do. know, Henry Fonda brings in new evidence and they, you know, they, they start cross-examining the witnesses, essentially. You know, they talk about the, the divots in the nose. And um, so I just wonder if, if, uh, maybe it's not that important, but I wonder if like, if this is really how a jury is supposed to go. Going back to my, my dad's jury trial. Um, so part of it was, I, I, I can't give all the details I, legally speaking, I think Please but, don't. Like, part of it was that, <laughs> um, that the man that was shot swung something at the cops it was an it was an everyday object that my dad was on his break uh, while he was deliberating was able to go feel out and say and he like felt it in his hands and swung it like physically and said there's no way this justifies a shooting 
um, and actually went back and voted the other way. So, like, yeah, I see what you say. That would be unreasonable. But, but that, he didn't bring that, it. He that didn't bring it into the courtroom. And it wasn't also an illegal object, yeah. right? Which they then left there. I was always <laughs> right. like, no, no, right. that part is illegal that they have it. So he left it for the state to take. He's I not guess. interested in keeping guess, it. Yeah. Well, you wouldn't be able to bring a switchblade into courtroom now. I mean, yeah. So, uh, of course, of course, 12 Angry Men is a little stylized in that way where, like, yeah, of course, this wouldn't really happen to some degree. Maybe maybe in this day and age, but it still has to happen. Uh, you still have to, like, look at, mold things over in your mind, look at all the evidence and figure out what's reasonable in order to come to the conclusion. Well, gents, uh, I think we've reached that time in our Sorry. podcast where we ask our famous questions. Number one, gentlemen, is this a dad movie? Mike? Uh, absolutely. hundred, hundred percent. Jesse? A thousand and ten percent. Tony? thousand and eleven percent. Then we are agreed. This movie is guilty of being an all-timer dad movie. I am so happy we can put it on the wall. Oh, there yeah. it is. It's beautiful. It's weird that it's sitting next to Spider-Man, but it's there. <laughs> Spider-Man 1 and 2, to be clear. And 3. Uh, no. Um, yeah. But this movie, so what, this, this movie conquered all of my dad categories. I will watch it with other dads with beer. I will watch it by myself. I will watch it with my kids. And furthermore, I have to show my kids this movie. No matter what happens in life, they have to see it. That's right. And that leads us into our second question. Jesse's already answered it. But uh, Mike, are you going to show your kids this movie? Oh, my gosh. Yes. Tony. Definitely. Well, as of yet, I don't have kids, but definitely. <laughs> but, but, you, <laughs> but someday. But you will. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. I, yeah. All right. Yeah, look, as Jesse said before we started recording, we're we're loaning you all the dad energy that you want. All right. To roll on through this thing. Um, I also am going to show my kids this. I'm so excited to. In fact, I, I turned it on the other day. Uh, my wife did not know that uh, we were doing this. She thought we were doing a different episode. Um, I have to say that we are recording this out of order because I didn't say it before. But um, uh, I was just watching it on a, on a Friday afternoon. And she walked by a couple times and said, oh, you're watching that? I said, yeah. And, uh, you know, time went on. And now it's, uh, it's you know, it's a Saturday evening. And she said, oh, you're, you're recording tonight. I said, yeah. And she goes, what are you recording on? I said, well, 12 Angry Men. She goes, oh, you watch that for the podcast? I said, yeah. Why else would I watch a 12 Angry Men on a Friday afternoon? She goes, because you... Cause you've done it before and that's not weird behavior. <laughs> so this is just a movie that I just watched. Uh, it, it's, it's kind of in, in a, on a short list of movies that I'll just turn on. Um, my daughter's already sat with me through it twice. Um, once when she could not remember it. And now recently where she ran in another room coloring and stuff. Um, but I can't wait to actually sit her down and have a deep conversation. Kind of like what we've had about, about this movie and what it means. Um, and I think that in terms of age, I think this is a movie that I would be comfortable letting her see kind of at any time. Um, the concepts are heavy and deep, but it's enough that maybe the more she's exposed to the movie, I think that maybe the more they'll sort of become ingrained in her and the, the more that she'll sort of have this, this interior dialogue about, um, about justice and about America and about our judicial system. Oh, yeah. um, I don't think it's a movie that I want to spring 
on on them because if you do i think you got to wait until they're much much older um mm. and it's just such an easy movie to watch uh yeah. i'd be comfortable with her seeing it i mean she, it, she's three and she helped watch she watched part of it with me um i, I i'll probably watch it every couple of years or so with her for from now on until i don't know until i die <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean i i watched this movie when i was like i at seven or eight and i loved it and got really into it so i i would be the same I would want my kids to watch around the same age. I think. Cool. Same here. Seven. Uh, eight, I think nine, that gives ten. it enough time. Yeah. What, what? What do you? What do you think, Tony? Just, uh, just projecting into the future. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about this because uh, I'd listened to one of your earlier podcasts, and this question had come up. Um, on the one hand, it seems like it's a very mature movie, um, and I worry sometimes about um, exposing kids to great art before they're ready for it, and then having that poison their their perception of it. So, you know, you read, you know, whatever grapes of wrath too early and you just find it boring, then maybe you don't come back to it later. Um, so I wonder if this is the kind of movie you want to wait till, you know, the kids are kind of at the age of reason where they can, uh, kind of follow the arguments and maybe, maybe, maybe I would say, uh, yeah, like an early teenager where you could sit them down and explain the concepts and, um, but I, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not holding that 100. I mean, there's art that I've um, that I've ingested before I was ready for it, um, and went back to it many times. So yeah. I don't think it's a hard and fast rule. Well, okay. I, I'm just gonna say I think the beauty of this movie is found in the way it presents the arguments. Like watching this when I was like eight, it, it was so simple to digest. Like I actually understood what was at stake and like i i think i just mentioned right i actually thought they were trying to prove something a little different than they actually were i think they're i thought they were they were actually trying to prove he's innocent rather than just poking holes in arguments that already exist so that misconception happened in my mind but i wasn't unable to follow the arguments like it's pretty they lay things out so clearly when they say things like it's impossible that the knife was the same and he pulls out the knife slams it on the table and says i bought this two blocks down from the apartment that the kid lives at even at 8 that is so obvious i could follow it regardless of what age uh from like 8 on to be honest I mean, I think these are all really great points of view, and I love that we we do, as as usual, we sort of uh, run the gamut. We yeah. we are the spectrum. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think that's really fun, and uh, I think it's just really how you come to this thing. Well, what's up, Mike? Can I want to I want to add one more question to our list of dad questions, and I know we are over two hours now on this podcast, <laughs> for sure. but I think it's really important um, because this is a dad podcast, and I think for for myself, one of the things that I think about is okay. If I want my kids to see this movie, what's the major point? What's what's the major sort of lesson that I want them to get out of it? Is it like, hey, this is a great work of art? Is it uh, there's this moral lesson that this uh, describes perfectly or some combination? I don't know. So I want to ask if you could put it into just a, a, a quick sentence or two. Um, what is it that you want your daughter, your kids, Jesse, to to get out of this movie? What, what would you hope for them to, to get when they, when they finish this? What I want my kids to get from this movie is that just because everybody says something is true, uh, that doesn't necessarily make it true. You need to find the truth 
kind of on your own and in tangent with everything that they're saying and um and basically put it to the scientific method i guess um to try to discover the truth and also um damn it i can't remember what i was saying i had it so good before oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, well okay. tony tony uh what do you think about this like why would you show this to your kids um, so I think there's a couple things. I think one, uh, like Jesse alluded to, the the idea of um, standing up for what's right in the face of total opposition is definitely powerful. But I think one of the other big themes in the movie is the value of human life. Um, throughout the movie, uh, you know, p- people keep telling Henry Fonda, "You're wasting our time. You're wasting our day. You know, why can't we get out of here? It's so hot." Um, and he just keeps talking about how you know we can spend an hour. This is someone's life, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think. Um, uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought. This is us two hours in. Yeah, we 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 are dragging. I think I, okay, okay. I think we're getting like we've got we've got two major points here. <laughs> Vito, I think you can come up with a third. Let's go. Let's do it. Uh, I would show this to my daughter because of the respect that I have for the original source material. Okay. Um, this is something that that was like I said before. It was just so fundamental to my understanding of trauma. And my understanding of, of how to write and how to evaluate and how to criticize and how to analyze um, a piece of work, a piece of, of fiction, um, either visual or, or literary. And it, I would want her to approach it from that more technical standpoint. Um, but it also says a lot about America, about how our justice system is flawed and how it's good. Um, it, it provides almost the checks and balances itself. Um, so I'd want to I'd want to show it to her for that reason. And additionally, I'd want to show it to her because of the deep uh, well of empathy that's at the heart of this movie. Um, This very um, uh, essentially humanistic, uh, beautiful ability of all the characters to try and understand the other characters, even when they're really angry. And yeah, harsh words are thrown, but... At the end of the day, there is this olive branch that passes out between characters, even between characters that have just been insulting each other. Um, it's a very good movie about teamwork and as stupid and corporate as that sounds um, about friendship. Uh, and it's really about that. It's about living in a society, being a citizen. Um, so for those for those reasons, I, I would show it to her. That's awesome. Oh, you bleeding heart <laughs> I, I i think that those are all the same reasons i i want to show it to my kids and the only thing I, i'd add is is that i think that the um the statement it makes about how we're all coming to 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 everything that we encounter with a prejudice and we need to take a step back from it and recognize that um i think that's really important we need to have that little henry fonda in our brain that says hey wh- why are you really thinking this like, get, give it a minute. Think about what, what you're doing and then uh, move forward. I, I think I think that that's probably the only thing I'd add to, to all that. I wish we'd ended with Vito because yours was definitely the most heartfelt <laughs> no, no, and really, no, really no, great I, I lo- to it all. No, I, I love the little Henry Fonda in everybody. <laughs> 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 oh, man. Well, guys... Uh, this is, this has been our longest episode yet. And, it's been uh, so much fun. And yeah, one of definitely our most fun. And I, I, I wanted to make it long, especially because, you know, we had a lot of fun, you know, just talking about the movie as just a movie. 
um, and what we wanted to see from it going forward. And I also wanted to talk about it as it, you know, this is just an all time classic. If we can't take our time with these, what are we going to take our time with? I mean, I mean, Lord forbid we ever do the Godfather because we're going to be here for the running time of the Godfather. <laughs> well, this is this oh. this podcast is already already a good uh, a good a good movie and a half of Twelve Angry Men. It is. So, it's true. You it's know, true. We're, we're so much longer than the time. When we do the Godfather, it's going to be like a quick fifteen minutes. Oh, like, this hope. movie was made. <laughs> Goodbye. Hope. You should all see it. That would be great. I mean, what else could we possibly say? We'll about read that? the credits <laughs> off. Yeah. So, so that's, that's a great dad podcast. <laughs> Stay tuned to our shortest episode ever later. Um, but uh, join us uh, next time that we record in this mini series. Our next movie will be To Kill a Mockingbird in our grandfather's trilogy of courtroom dramas. So, To Kill a Mockingbird, look for it. Um, but from all of us here at Not Your Father's Movies, I'm Vito. I'm Mike. I'm Jesse. I'm Lenny. All right, everyone. Take care, and uh, we'll see you soon. Hey everyone, this is Mike from Not Your Father's Movies. Thank you so much for listening. If you've got any questions on tonight's episode, thoughts on movies that should or should not be in the dad canon, and most importantly, things Vito got wrong, we'd literally love to hear from you. Shoot us an email with anything you got at notyourfathersmovies at gmails.com. That's notyourfathersmovies at gmail.com. And if that's not enough for you and you want more ways to listen to us, reach us, share us, and support us, Check out our website at nyfm.podbean.com. That's nyfm.podbean.com. Shout out to Max Agros for our sick theme music. Thank you, Max, and thank you all again for listening to us. Have a great night. Mm-hmm.